about, uh, let's see, 1st of July, my family and I, we're going to go on a kind of a mission trip vacation together, and we're leaving my cul-de-sac, which is just three miles from here, and we're going to Houston via Jackson, Tennessee, so we have about an 1,100-mile trip, and we are pulling out of the cul-de-sac, and we're driving up the road to get, I mean, we're, we're one-tenth of a mile into our trip of 1,100 miles, and there are two people parked, stopped in the, in the road. So they, they've met each other and they've stopped to have a conversation. All right? So I politely pull up behind them and wait. All right, so let's take a little quiz. What is the appropriate protocol on how long one waits before they honk the horn? All right, let's go 10 seconds, 20 seconds, 30 seconds. You never honk. What else is there? A minute? A minute, oh. No seconds, you just honk immediately? What is the appropriate amount of time to honk the horn? One second? Until they move? Uh, anybody? Okay, all right. So. I pulled up and sat there patiently, understanding, mind you, I've got 1,100 miles to go, and I'm one-tenth of a mile in. The guy in the car looking at me looks at me. And then they continue to talk. What is wrong with these people? I, I am so... Now, I'm going to go do missions work and I've lost my religion uh, one-tenth of a mile into the trip. Okay. Now, I honked the horn and I knew it was okay. I waited the appropriate amount of time because my wife didn't say, Honey, uh, so that's, that's an indicator for me. If she doesn't get on me, then I know I did okay. Because sometimes it's like, don't do that. But this time it was like... So they moved after I honked, and as I drive by, the guy scowls at me. I, I tell you, it drives me nuts. Now, here's, this is super interesting. There's a, a journal called the Journal of Applied Social Psychology. And they studied people who are, you're in a parking place, and somebody's waiting for your parking place. And they studied people in the parking place. And when you know somebody's waiting... According to sociologists, we wait longer to pull out of the parking place if we know somebody's waiting for it, because we're punks. That's why. If they honk the horn at us, what does it do to you? You wait longer. Oh, that's you all. Okay. Four times longer if they honk the horn. Now, have you ever had anybody, like, steal a parking place? I'm going to give you some instruction on what to do. Okay? This is what you do. Now, I'm going to try this. I think this is my slide, and we'll see if it works. Oh, it did work. This is what you do. This is the Christian response to somebody stealing your place. You have to have a G, by the way. That's a Walmart. Anybody? Yes. Next week, the sermon title is going to be Vengeance is Mine. Uh, so just so you know, because evidently we need it. Okay, stop it. A lot if you can stop it. All right. 
just notice with me, if you will, parking place, parking place, parking place. It wasn't like there weren't any parking places. He just wanted that parking place. Something else. If you're at a, a restaurant, now that's why we love the 1030 service, isn't it? 1030, uh, we talked about this. Who was I talking about this with? Uh, Justin, wherever you are. Uh, uh, 1030, you, um, you, you, you get out of church at 1130, you go to Mr. Salsa, you beat the crowd. I mean, it's awesome, right? If you're sitting and you notice people are waiting, statistically speaking, you spend longer, you linger because of something called territorialism. This is the word they give it. Um, basically, it says, this is mine, and you can't have it. And we all kind of know this. Now, here's the problem. When this is mine gets in the way of doing other stuff that God wants us to do, because this is what happens. We get obsessed, we get fixated and focused on things that aren't really that important if we're not careful. And so today we're talking about a key word. Remember, we're in this series called 10 Words That Can Change Your Life. And today we're talking about the word no, because sometimes we need to learn to say no. Now, when you were two, you were great at no. Uh, go to bed, no. Uh, eat your peas, no. Uh, be nice to your sister, no. We're great at no when we're two. But then we figure out that people like us better if we say yes. So we say yes to things on our schedule that we really don't want to do. We say yes to our bosses. We say yes to more meetings. We say yes to obligations. We say yes to stuff we can't afford because we like yes better and we become these decent, respectable, exhausted people who don't have any time for God. Let me read to you just a, a paragraph from an author by the name of Shauna Nyquist. And she writes about how to say no or what, how powerful no was for her. And she says this, And so if you, like me, have said too many yeses, and found that all hopeful, exciting, wide-open intention has actually left you scraped raw and empty, the word that can change everything and that changed everything for me is no. Now, I, I know I don't like it either, she says. Yes is fun and sparkly and printed on tote bags. What if you saw somebody wearing a sweatshirt that said no? I don't want to sit next to that bundle of fun. But no became the scalpel I wielded to regain my life. And sometimes we have to say, no, generally speaking, God will not force his way into your life. And sometimes we have to make space for him. And if we get too busy, then we have to say no to some stuff. Here's the principle. If you're clear on your mission, if you're clear about your identity and who you are and why you're here, it becomes clear what you should say yes to and what you can say no to. Clarity is huge. And Jesus begins his ministry and he says no to lots and lots of things. The problem is life, life is this. We, we cram so much stuff in there that we have to learn. We say no to lesser good things to say yes to the best things. Um, and sometimes you have to empty your life in order to put something back in. I've developed a practice that I think really is, is a good thing to do. Before I buy something new, I get rid of something old. So let's say, I'll give you an example. This is real simple, simplistic. Uh, let's say I decided I want some new shoes. Before I go buy new shoes, I'll take some old, some, uh, maybe a pair or two of my old shoes, and I'll give them away or you know, like go to Miracle Hill and give them. Typically, I wear my shoes out, so I can't, you really nobody wants them. But, but there's a place up by Tractor Supply that will recycle your shoes up on Wade Hampton, and so I'll take them there. 
But you get rid of something to replace it with something else. And that's kind of the general principle today. Sometimes we have to get rid of stuff in order to, to insert some things that God wants us to do in our lives. So let's talk about Jesus. Here's the setting. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 4 today if you want to turn there. All right, so in Matthew chapter 3, Jesus inaugurates his ministry. And you all probably know this, that kind of the, the big event for that was his baptism. And he goes to the Jordan River, and his cousin John the Baptist is baptizing, and John baptizes him. And then a voice from heaven says this, says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And you would think that the next thing that Jesus would do is have a rally. Uh, maybe he would go tour some churches, <laughs> you know. What he does, he goes into the wilderness and he's tested. And there's something you have to understand about your spiritual life, and really any life, anything, any aspect of your life. If you're never tested, you just don't know what you're made of. So Jesus goes into the wilderness and he's tested. And that's where we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after 40 days of fasting, uh, for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, which makes sense, obviously. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Super interesting point here. Jesus always, there are three temptations. We're going to look at all of them today. Jesus always responds to a temptation with Scripture. And all three of the Scriptures he uses are from Deuteronomy. So I'm kind of thinking in my mind, maybe we should look at Deuteronomy maybe first of next year sometime or in the middle of next year. But we're going to kind of, I'm going to go there, I think, because God's, I feel like God's telling us to. But you, you hear this and Jesus quotes this, but let's look at it in context. Because it's, it's, if we dig down a little bit, it really makes a lot of sense. So in Deuteronomy, now you recall, you'll recall, right? Before we, don't read it, don't read it. Look here, look at me. You have Israel, the Israelites, and they're in Egypt, and the Egyptians enslave them, right? And they're enslaved for hundreds of years. And there's a guy named Moses, and Moses comes along, and he's God's great deliverer, and there are ten plagues. Really bad things happen to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians uh, ultimately relent, and allow the Israelites these this slave this this mass of slavery, these this workforce that they have for free, they release them because of God's hand, and they go to the, the to the Red Sea, and and now all of a sudden there's the Red Sea in front of them, and the Egyptians change their mind and they're coming after them, and God parts the Red Sea and leads them toward the Promised Land. Right, you all know this, and while they're in the wilderness waiting to get into the promised land they have to do this for 40 years god provides manna this is sort of it's kind of a weird deal it's like every morning they would wake up and and the dew would become or had in it some sort of bread and they would collect this and they would or some flour or something and they would make bread and they would make stuff out of manna nobody had ever seen it before so that's this this verse god humbled you you israelites causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna which neither you nor your ancestors had known because it never happened before. I mean, they didn't know it because they'd never seen it before. To teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth 
of God. And what he is basically saying is, God was teaching you, economically, spiritually, that he will provide. Because you worked for people. This is what Moses was saying, and this is what Jesus was saying, actually. The Israelites worked for Egyptians who said that you had to have more and more and more. And so they would have these great harvests of grain. And they would force the slaves, the Israelites, to build these great, uh, these great uh, barns and these things to, uh, to contain the grain. And the message was, it is so important for us to have more that we are willing to enslave people to have it. And the people that they enslaved were God's people. But it could have been anybody. And what Jesus was saying is, hey, the temptation is this. And here's our temptation. You are what you have. And the Egyptians were saying, we are what we have, and we have a lot of grain, and we are somebody, and we're great, and we're powerful. And Jesus would say, look, man does not live by bread alone. And when we hear that, we're thinking bread. You mean the stuff that you make toast out of, and it's bigger than this. Because when the, when the Israelites would hear the word bread, they would understand it's not just dough and it's not just toast what he's talking about is the stuff god does not live i mean man does not live just by the stuff that we possess and we live in a world that tells us you are what you have why do they put logos on shirts and on cars and on tote bags and on purses because the message is out there you are what you have and what you have identifies you as important or not when I was in college, I bought a Rolex for $20. I don't know if you're watch savvy or not, but pretty much I'm fairly certain that wasn't real. I got a hint of that when my arms started turning green uh, underneath the watch. Now, people thought I was the Hulk, so that was kind of cool. But, uh, but really, what I wanted to be identified as was, you know, I had money. or, or I, mean, I, I did it because there's a status that's attached to that Rolex. And we live in a world that says if you drive the right thing, if you live in the right place, if you wear the right stuff, if you have enough things, then you are somebody. And here's the problem with that. What it basically says is if you, you are what you have, so if you don't have much, then you aren't much. And that is destructive. If you don't have much, you're not much. And you hear things, you hear words and that talk about people in such a way that it's demeaning because of where they live or what they drive or what they wear. Now, there was a guy named Paul. He wrote a lot of the New Testament. And he had an apprentice, kind of an apprentice pastor. His name was Timothy. And he writes this letter to him. And 1 Timothy, look at what it says. But godliness with contentment is awesome. It's, it's great gain. It's the best. If you can become content, it is amazing. It's like the best thing ever. Godliness with contentment is great gain because we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we, had, if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. We don't need anything else. But he gives a warning. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And that ruin and destruction sometimes looks like this. I'm going to work so hard and I'm going to put in so many hours that I'm going to abandon my family. And they're going to come home 
Uh, I'm going to come home to a big house, and when my kids leave and go off to college, they're never going to want to come back because I didn't spend any time with them. I'm going to sacrifice my children on the altar of stuff so that people might think I'm important. I'm going to sacrifice my children on the altar of stuff so when I pull up at the stoplight, I can be in a car that impresses the guy next to me who I don't even know and I'm never going to see again. That's what it looks like. And Paul warns us. <laughs> it plunges people into ruin and destruction for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And the love of stuff is too. Some people eager for money have wandered even from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Here's the world in which you live. You are what you have. Now, there's a response, and I'm going to give it to you. You say no to more stuff. You're, you're going to be tempted by more stuff because there's a whole, there's a whole industry dedicated to get you to buy more stuff. It tells you that you need more stuff. You need a new car. You need a new house. You need two all-beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onion on what? That's right. You need it. You don't just want it. You need it. That, that's what it tells you, okay? And here's the deal. Jesus would say, just say no to stuff. You don't have to have more stuff. Now, in Scripture, this is called a fast. You can fast from food. That's kind of what we think most of the time. But there are other things. We'll talk about that in just a second. But a fast is this. To fast means I temporarily refrain from consuming what I ordinarily consume or do in order to make space for God. I'm going to say no to this notion that I am what I have. And I'm going to say no to some stuff. Because here's the deal. You are born and basically you are a bundle of appetites. When you're little bitty, what do you want? You want somebody to feed you. You want somebody to change your diaper. You want somebody to hold you. You want somebody to lay you down. You want somebody to pick you up. This is what you do. When you're little, you are a bundle of appetites. And, and we have these people who are de dedicated to trying to get you to still be a bundle of appetites. You need, you need, you need. But Simon Peter, Peter was one of Jesus' great friends. He says this, you're a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're God's special possession. <laughs> this has nothing to do with stuff. There's not one stuff word here. You're not a chosen people and a royal priesthood and a holy nation and a special possession because of what you have. You're chosen because you're a creation of God and He loves you. Notwithstanding how much you have, you don't have to have a logo, you don't have to drive anything special for God to love you. And we must become familiar and comfortable with who we are. Remember, let's go back to it, the principle. If you're clear on your mission, you'll be clear on when to say no. And sometimes we need to say no. Let me show you a verse. Paul says, I run with purpose. I know where I'm going. I know what I'm supposed to be doing. I run with purpose in every step. I'm not just shadow boxing. I'm not playing. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. And so when I fast, I teach my body I don't have to satisfy every appetite. I can say no to some stuff. Now, if you've never fasted before, 
do without a meal. Here's what it looks like. It's mealtime and you don't have one. That, that's what it, lo- it looks just like that. Oh, look, it's 12. I'm not going to eat. That, that's what fasting looks like. But it also looks like this. I'm going I'm to take that little amount of time that I was going to eat and I'm going to pray. Or I'm going to read the Bible. Or I'm going to meditate on what God is doing in my life. I'm going to devote, I'm going to take, I'm going to take this time away from food and I'm going to devote it to something else. I'm going to devote it to God. I'm going to do something with God. Here's what happens for me when I, when I fast. I realize how dependent I am on God to provide for me. Now, I know, I know none of us in this room have ever done this, but we've heard of people, we have, who they'll be eating and all of a sudden they'll realize they didn't pray and they'll, they'll, then they'll, it's like, oh, I should have prayed. I know none of us. I'm a preacher. It doesn't happen to me, but maybe you. Uh, so, um, but here's, here's the point. I can get food anytime I want. All day long. I could eat 24 hours a day if I wanted to. I don't, I don't but I could. You come to my house after church, and I can take you to the cupboard, and we've got food. And I can open up the, the refrigerator, and there's food. Because we have food. In fact, here at church, there's a refrigerator. There's food. It's been there three months, but we have it. Uh, so uh, it's there. It's moldy. You can still pick around. If we want to eat, we can eat. We're Americans, for goodness sakes. There's food everywhere. When I fast, I'm reminded what I have is a gift from God. It also reminds me that there are places where people go to bed hungry. There, there are places in this world where little children don't have enough to eat. There are places in this world, in this country, probably in this community, where people go to bed with empty stomachs. My compassion level increases when I fast. I begin to think to myself, you know what? It's great to have food. And I think about people who don't have food. And by golly, I'm not going to waste food. My mother-in-law was at my first service, at our first service. She's Swiss, and uh, they grew up poor. I mean, poor. Uh, we we kind of joke about this at, at Maddie's house when we go to her house, but in her refrigerator, she has containers this big with like seven uh, kernels of corn. I mean, she she never wastes anything. These little bitty containers. I mean, she's got 900 of them in her fridge. And because she, she, will not, she will not throw away food. We, we eat everything. They, they, you, they, they cook spaghetti. Do you, do you like used old spaghetti? Not used spaghetti. Because um, um, that's gross. Um, Leftover, that's the word, that's the word I was looking for. Leftover spaghetti. <laughs> you spaghetti, that's weird. Uh, the first service didn't get this. Oh, sorry for them. It stinks to be them. Um, so she'll fry it. Have you ever had that? Fried, like, leftover spaghetti? <laughs> it's a lot. Um, um, we eat it because um, that's what we have. When I fast, my focus becomes clearer, right? It becomes clearer. 
Maybe it's not food. Maybe, it's, maybe shopping. Maybe God is saying to you today, I, I really think God is speaking to people. Maybe God is saying to us, you should go on a shopping fast. Men, can I get a witness? I mean, yes. Hallelujah, that's right. Woman, listen to him. Um, could you go? Could you? Could you, would you, if you could? Um, could you go a, a month? Or six months without buying anything for yourself? Could you go six months? Could you go a year? Would it be possible to go a year and just not buy anything for yourself? I mean, other than food, but like stuff. What if, what if God says to us, look, don't, don't do so much for people who have so much at Christmas? What? Why don't you spend the money you were going to spend on people who have a million things already? And why don't you take that and put it into Operation Christmas Child Boxes? Because we're going to do that beginning really soon. What if God said, the money that you usually use on fluff, why don't you use that to help children who have nothing? That's what fasting looks like. I'm going to reallocate. You could go on an electronic fast. Do you know this? This is amazing. This invention, which is a, which is a cool invention. Don't look at it. Uh, look at mine. It's like, oh, he's got his phone out. Uh, no. Somebody one time was in a room. And they said, you know what we should do? Every time they get a text, we should make this thing because when it buzzes, they're going to look at it. Mine just buzzed. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Um, yes, they, it's going to buzz. It doesn't have to buzz. Somebody said, hey, we'll get them to look at it when it buzzes. And I can be in a conversation. Dwayne and I could be talking. We could be chatting it up. And all of a sudden, my phone buzzes. What do I do? It's just Dwayne. Uh, I, I look at my phone. Because my phone's more important than Dwayne and, and everybody else in my life. Could you go a day without looking at your phone? Did you know this? I'm going to give you a statistic. It's going to kind of mess you up. On average, Americans look at their phones 150 times a day. On average. 150 times. And I got to thinking about that. It's like, that's whack. There's no way. It's not. It's true. I've been hiking before. This is just amazing to me. I've been hiking. You're in... God's paradise. I mean, we live in an amazing place. You can be hiking in the mountains. It is just amazing. And I will see people on their phones while they hike. And I'm praying, I'm praying, Lord, could you help them trip? Uh, you know, just for the love of Jesus. I don't want them to break anything much. Because uh, I don't want to have to carry them out. But, but... Could, could you fast from stuff like that? Because here's the deal. The temptation is you are what you have. And the, the solution is just say no to some stuff that you usually say yes to. The second temptation is this. You are what you do. Men almost always, if we meet some, another man, our, our initial conversation is, hey, I'm Joseph, what do you do? 
what do you do? What, what's, what's your deal? What, do you, what, what are you into? You know, are you a baker, a candlestick maker? I mean, what, what are you? What do you do? Because you don't find candlestick makers very often. What do you do? And the, the temptation is you are what you do. Look at, look at how it worked for, for Jesus. The devil led Jesus up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms in the world. And he said to him, I'll give you all the authority and splendor if you worship me. It'll all be yours. And Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And the idea is, if you don't do much, you aren't much. And as the great theologian Ricky Bobby once said, if you're not first, you're last. That's right. On CNBC, there's a show. It's called American Greed. You may have never watched it. You really don't have to. I'm going to give you the premise of every show. They, they're all the same, generally speaking. American Greed. Here's the show. Here's the plot. There's, there's a person, typically a guy, who believes that the more he has, the more important he is, and that he is what he does, and he can be, he's important. And the way he shows his importance is the accumulation of things. And so he's successful, and then he wants to be more successful, and he finds a way to shortcut success, and, and it's illegal. And so he likes being important, and he likes fame and all that, and so he's willing to risk all, everything to be somebody because this is the temptation. I am what I have, and I am what I do. And he gets caught, and he put, gets put in prison, and he loses his family. This is every episode. And it's funny, there's a lot of episodes, because this goes on and on and on. And how you get past this whole idea of you are what you do is that you say no to doing more stuff. The biblical word for this is you have a Sabbath. Let me tell you what a Sabbath is. I'll define it. It's a period of time where you're not working, you're not creating value, or you're not being important. You're just enjoying God. New Yorker magazine used to have these little cartoons, and their very most favorite one is uh, famous one is this one. No Thursdays out. How about never? Is never good for you? Because at some point, we need to say no. Jesus launches his ministry. He, he, is, he launches it. And it... He immediately goes 40 days and does nothing but hang out with God. He doesn't preach a sermon. He doesn't write a book. He doesn't hang out with disciples. He spends time alone with God for 40 days. And doing nothing is really important for people who believe that you are what you do. How many of you, I don't, I'm not asking for a confession. You don't have to raise your hand. Let's do it this way. How many of you know people, this is always easier, who if they go on vacation, they have every minute scheduled? Kids, we're going to get up at 6, we're going to swim with the dolphins. And uh, at 9.30, we're having brunch with the king of Scotland. And at 12, we're going to, have, we're going to shoot skeet over the ocean. And at 2 o'clock, we're going to have cotton candy. And at 4.30, we're going to go go-karting. And at 7 o'clock, we're going to have golf balls. Because heaven forbid that you have a vacation where you do something called rest. Just rest. Here's the point. If we want to be like Jesus... We have to do the things Jesus did. And Jesus would often, it says, step away and commune with God because you just aren't what you do. 
too many of us that bought that lie. The last one kind of sums up the other two, actually. The temptation is you are what people think of you. And here's the thing. If I have a lot of stuff, guess what? People will think well of me. And if I'm always busy, people will think I'm important. And look at what the devil tempts, how he tempts Jesus. He led Jesus to Jerusalem and had him stand at the highest point of the temple. And he said, if you're the son of God, throw throw yourself down from here. For it's written in scripture, he will command, God will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. And they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And then look at this last verse we're going to look at today. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him, what, until when? An opportune time, because the temptations never stop. And the world will continuously say, you are what you have, you are what you do, you are what people think of you. Think about Jesus just for a second. Who did he not disappoint by saying no to them? He disappointed nearly everybody except God. There, he, he fed the 5,000 and they wanted to immediately make him king because he's the provider of free food. And he said no. And Jesus' mom and his brothers, one time Jesus is teaching and they show up and they say, well, you've lost your mind, uh, come out to us. And Jesus said no. And the Pharisees said, well, he could, be the, he could be the Messiah, but he hangs out with the wrong kind of people. He should hang out with the right kind of people. And Jesus said no. And you have James and John and they say, Jesus, we'd really like to be at your right hand and your left hand. And Jesus says no. And there's Simon Peter, and, and Jesus said, you know what, I'm going to go and um, I'm going to be crucified. And Peter said, no, that's not what we're going to do. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, which is exactly what I say to people when I pass them, though people are driving in the left lane slow, uh, and I pass them on the right. I'll say, get behind me, Satan. I love that verse because it's Jesus. That's why I like it. And Herod, Jesus is there, and Herod says, uh, show us a miracle and we'll believe in you. And Jesus says, no. Jesus constantly disappoints people by saying no. Jesus is like the no ninja. He's always saying no to things. Because he knew his purpose. He was okay with his identity. The solution is just say no to human approval Jesus didn't have to have it, and you don't have to have it either. And sometimes somebody will ask you to do something that you know you really don't want to do and shouldn't do. Now, sometimes you should do stuff, but, but let's say you just should say no to this. You know you should say no. Say no and be okay with people not liking you. It is okay for people, not everybody, to like you. Listen to this. Jesus is on the cross. He's on the cross. And the crowd yells at him. You saved other people. Save yourself. And from the cross, Jesus says no. He could have. The Bible says he could have called 10,000 angels. That would have been bad. I mean, dude, that, that would have been something. And Jesus' no to that was yes to us. It is okay to say no. The the question that we're going to end with is this. In this time today, here's what I really truly believe in, in my spirit. I think, I believe, that God brought you here for a reason today.
I don't think it's just random or an accident you're here. You're here because God wanted you to be here. I think he ordained it from the foundation of the world. And today we talked about saying no to stuff. And maybe you're the one. I don't know who you are. Maybe you're the one. And God has said to you, are you listening? Because I've been telling you to say no to a lot of stuff. I've been telling you to say no to this idea that you are what you have. And I've been telling you no to say no to this idea that you are what you do. And I've been telling you to say no to this idea that you are what people think of you. It only matters what I think of you. Remember our word contentment? Contentment. Can you be content just being a child of God? Is there something in your life you need to say no to? So we're going to practice. I'm going to help you. We're going to practice saying no. You, you, I want us to say it. We're, I'm going to go one, two, three, and we're going to say no with great vigor. And this is the kind of vigor I want us to say it with. You're, you're a South Carolina fan. And somebody says to you, do you, you like Clemson, don't you? Th- this, is the, this is the no I want you to say. Because I know South Carolina fans, and I know Clemson fans. Now, uh, Clemson fans, um, this is the kind of no you say when somebody says to you, Alabama's better than you, aren't they? And, and then you're going to say it like you mean it, right? You're going to say it like you mean it. Vlad, you can say it like you mean it. I'm, 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 I see you back there. He just shook his head. He did not like that. So we're going to say it like we mean it, right? If it was me, I'm a Kentucky guy, and, and if you were to say something about Duke, I don't care what it was, other than are they ugly, I'd say yes. But, but, uh, uh, but, but Duke's better than you this year. Oh, oh, oh. I'm feeling it right here. Feel it. I want you to feel it in your spirits. This is from, this is guttural. This is like, this is, we're going to do it like we're Neanderthals. I mean, that's how we're going to say it, okay? You got it? So next time somebody says to you, or you hear the message, you are what you have, what are you going to say? That's right. Next time somebody says, you are what you do, what are you going to say? Say it. No. Next time somebody says, you are what people think of you, what are you going to say? No. That's right. No. Let's pray. Father, we are who you say we are. We are precious souls saved by grace because Jesus was willing to say no to lesser good things. So he would say and could say yes to us. Jesus took our sin so we didn't have to. Thank you. And I have absolutely no doubt that you give us the power. You give us the ability. And now I hope you can give us the desire to say no to lesser things. Lord, help us to know that we are not what we do. We are not what we have. We are not what somebody thinks of us. We are precious to you. We can be content in what we have. And I pray that we will be. And we ask it humbly in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.